Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. We live in a generation that's characterised by suspicion. We're suspicious of people in power. We're suspicious of people who claim that they know the truth and they want to tell it to you. There was a day when politicians, teachers and priests were trusted, but now we view them really with suspicion and often for good reason. We ask, what are they trying to sell me? What's, what are they trying to put over me? What's their real motive? What's the angle? What's in it for them? The writer Dick Kyes has written a book on the subject of cynicism. And he says that the real meaning of cynicism is seeing through. That the cynic claims to see through other people's attitudes and the things that they say to the real motive underneath and really is never satisfied that what a person is saying is really what they mean. Cynicism, we want to see through. And I think this is particularly the case for spiritual things. Our generation is very sensitive to spiritual abuse and with good reason. About a hundred years ago, skeptics believed that the world was gradually becoming less and less religious. But the opposite has happened. Religion is on the rise. And the rise of religion has often been accompanied with violence and intolerance and oppression, as you know. And the Christian church, too, has to own up to its share of scandals and cover-ups. People want to know the truth. They've always wanted to see it, but now they've got less and less confidence that there is a truth to be seen. And how could you reach it anyway? And I think our text today, John chapter 9, speaks directly to this situation of wanting to see the truth. But it does so in an unexpected way because it reveals this paradoxical thing. Here it is. Only those who realize that they are blind may see. Only those who realize they're blind may see. Now the Gospel of John, which we're working through as a church, was written for for a purpose. John actually gives a purpose statement right at the end of his book in chapter 20. It's on page 1090 in the English Bible if you want to read it. John chapter 20 verse 30, John kind of gives this summary comment. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now John there is saying something very significant. He's offering a challenge and a promise. The challenge is to believe, to believe in Jesus, to move into a new place where you follow Jesus Christ. And John makes radical claims all through his book. They're radical for us because he claims that there is a God, one God, and that God has moved into history by coming as a human being, incarnated. God became a man, and that God is the only God. There's an exclusivity about this. He makes claims upon all humanity and on all cultures. Now, there's a challenge for us today. But, you know, this book was just as challenging in the Roman Empire when it was first written. To claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the one true king. Well, what about Caesar? To claim that Jesus is the only way to know God and the only true God. 
Well, what about all the gods that are worshipped by your pagan neighbours? This book has always been controversial and challenging. So when John says he wants to help us believe in Jesus, it's not like believing in Henry VIII. I guess most of us believe in Henry VIII. We believe he existed. But that kind of believing doesn't demand much from you. This demands everything. My heart, my life, my soul, my all. John wants that kind of belief, total allegiance. And with this radical challenge to believe Jesus is the Messiah comes an astonishing promise that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we all want life, don't we? Even the most depressed person really wants life. The reason why they're suicidal is that they haven't got the life they hoped for. They desperately crave it. Life in all its fullness. We seek life. We seek relationships that, with people that are life-giving. We want a career that is life-fulfilling. We might want children to create life and share life. And when life is threatened, we spring into action. When life is taken, we're shattered. I heard this week about a friend of ours at the church. He used to come to the church a few years ago, a man called Chris Till. And I heard... Someone told me this in passing. He just donated a kidney to his brother-in-law. He donated a kidney, and he's off work for some quite a long time, recovering from the operation himself. Now, I have to say, when I heard that, I sort of winced a bit. The idea of parting with a kidney. I've never seen my kidneys, but I'm quite fond of them. I think they do useful things for me. The idea of somebody cutting open my body and taking out a kidney and giving it to somebody else to save their life, as worthy as it is, actually made me pause for a moment. Would I do the same thing? Now, what Chris has done is saved his brother-in-law's life. And apparently, he said, Jesus Christ gave his whole life for me. I can give my brother-in-law a kidney. What about you? Would you give a kidney for someone? We quite like our lives, don't we? John says his book can give you life. The life you were made for. How? By helping you see Jesus Christ. By helping you see him. You get life in his name. In his name means through his person and his work. This book can change your life and your destiny. Now John says that Jesus did many miracles and he says, I haven't written most of them down. But he has written seven. Here they are. Firstly, he changed water into wine. Then he healed an official's son. This official actually was some distance away and Jesus healed at a distance. He healed a man at a pool who'd been uh, invalid for 38 years. He fed 5,000 people with a packed lunch. He walked on water. He healed a man born blind. And finally, he raised Lazarus, a friend of his, from the dead. There's seven signs, seven miracles recorded for us in John's gospel, and only seven. John has been highly selective. He says he's picked these seven signs for us and written them down so that you may believe and have life. Now, you can see from this that we're actually already on number six. And so we're quite near the end of the signs. And after number seven, we're going to take a break as a church from John's gospel for a while. It's a natural moment to pause because... John, like a game of football, is, is a game of two halves, and we're coming to the end of the first 
path. So I want to ask today, how does this sixth sign, the healing of the man born blind, how does that help us to believe in Jesus and to have life in his name? What's its contribution to the whole picture that John's been painting? And here's the answer, I think. This sign, the healing of the man born blind, shows us the nature of true seeing. It shows us the nature of true faith. Because in the Bible, seeing, true seeing, is faith. You see truly when you get the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith sees things in the world and sees our situation as it really is, not just as it appears. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, faith is a different kind of sight. It's a different kind of seeing. And the man born blind is a model of faith. Most of the people so far in John's Gospel who've sort of believed in Jesus have heard some hard teaching and then drifted away one by one. Or they've heard something they didn't like and they've argued with Jesus and fallen out with him. Very few people in the book so far have really got it, but this man does. He really gets it, and in fact, in verse 38, as Michelle just read for us so well, the man says to Jesus, the end of the story, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him, which probably means he fell down on the floor and worshipped him as God. Now elsewhere in the Bible, if, if a person falls down before someone else, before a human, and worships them, those humans are appalled, and they do everything in their power to stop them. And rightly so. Worship is due to God alone. To accept worship is to engage in treason against God's majesty. It's blasphemy. But not for Jesus Christ. You notice that? He accepts the worship. This man born blind is a shining example of true faith. He really sees. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? The one person who really sees was born with no eyes. Because the story is showing us that the physical miracle that Jesus does is also a powerful picture of what needs to happen to us spiritually so that we can see. We learn three things about true faith in this passage. The first one is this. Faith is given to those who know they're blind. Faith is given to those who know they're blind. The second thing we learn is that faith obeys Jesus even when it seems ridiculous. And thirdly, faith sees the love and power of Jesus. Faith is given to those who know they're blind. Have a look at the story with me again. Back in chapter 9, on page 1075. As he went along, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, how do they know that he's blind from birth? It must be obvious from his appearance. His eyes haven't formed in their sockets. He doesn't have the dignity of a pair of sunglasses. His disability is on public display. And he's taken the only job that's available to him in that culture, which is begging. Now, he may well be a, quite a well-known figure in the city. He's a tragic, pathetic figure sitting there near the temple, holding out his bowl, hoping for some spare change from the pilgrims as they pass. A man born blind. Now it's obvious, isn't it, that he knows he's blind as well. He's never seen the light. He was born in darkness, raised in it. Now this man can speak, he can hear, he 
He can actually argue his case really well, we find out. And he's got a pretty strong character. But nevertheless, his blindness is constantly with him. And he knows it. In verse 32, he actually says, uh, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. No one's ever heard of it, but you can bet that he's asked. He's asked. Growing up as a child, as a young person, he would have sought an answer to this question. Have you ever heard of someone who got their sight restored? And the answer was always the same. No. It's impossible. It never happens. His disability is a prison from which no one has ever escaped. In the 1,500 years that spans the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, no blind person ever receives their sight. Now, the prophet Isaiah predicted that it would happen one day, but that was in the future, in the days when the Messiah comes. Nobody had actually seen it happen before. And even the wonders of modern medical science have been able to remove cataracts and restore sight that way, but not to restore the sight of one born with congenital birth defects, with no eyes that could function, and none of the brain categories that could link it up. He knows he's blind. But at the end of the story, Jesus takes the, the idea of blindness to another level. Have a look with me at verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus confronts his opponents and he uses blindness as a way to describe their condition spiritually. He says, Do you see your spiritual need? If not, you are blind. Do you see your spiritual need? Now these Pharisees, these people who Jesus talked to, were deeply religious. They knew their Bibles. They went to synagogue. They thought they were righteous. They did all the right things. Jesus drops the bomb here. He says, you are blind. Why? Because a religious person who thinks that their religion just covers over their spiritual need is actually blind. Religion can't cut it. But the wonderful irony is that man born blind sees it. And he knows he's blind. So let's go back to that principle I mentioned at the start. Only those who realize they're blind may see. And let me ask you, friends, do you see your spiritual need? Do you see your spiritual need? Do you see that you're lost and that you need Jesus to find you and bring you home? Do you see that you're broken, that you need Jesus to put you back together again? Do you see that you're sick? You need Jesus to heal you. Do you see that you're guilty? You need Jesus to forgive you. Do you see that you're actually wicked at the heart level and you need Jesus to cleanse and change you? I wonder how you think of yourself as a spiritual person. Do you think you're unformed? Formed or deformed? According to Jesus Christ, we are all Disabled, spiritually disabled, spiritually our condition is blindness. We're born 
in the dark. We're born blind and only he can show us the light. He says he's the light of the world and in this story we see him enacting that physically. The man born blind is a picture of you and me. Born in the darkness, Jesus can give us sight. So let me ask you, have you turned to him? Do you know him? And if not, do you have a sincere desire to be enlightened? And if so, I think the second point will be true of you. Faith obeys Jesus even when it looks ridiculous. Faith obeys Jesus even when it looks ridiculous. Just imagine the scene for a moment. Here's this guy. He's sitting there begging. And uh, uh, Jesus walks over to him. There's a bit of a theological discussion about the disciples are wondering if it's somehow the, re- the result of sin. Jesus says, no, it's not about that. And he goes over to the man and he spits on the ground and he bends down into the dust, picks up the dust and makes a bit of paste and mud with the, with the, 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 the clay from the ground. And he goes over to this fellow and we don't know what passed between them. But can you imagine having spat on the ground and made some mud in my hands, I went over to Mike and pressed it onto his eyes. Rubbing mud onto his eyes. Now, this is not a conventional medical wisdom. I'm sure Jess would agree. It's not, and it wasn't in the ancient world. In fact, spitting even then was not considered something you did um, unless you wanted to offend somebody. What is Jesus doing? He then says to him, as if that wasn't enough, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. How far away is that? Scholars reckon it's between half a mile and three quarters of a mile away down through the city streets. He's got to make his way down to the pool of Siloam through the pilgrims. Because that's the other thing that's going on here. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three major feasts in Judaism. And the city is crammed with thousands of extra pilgrims. And they're all coming out of the temple. And Jesus says to this blind man, now just walk your way down to the pool of Siloam and wash your eyes, will you? It would be like feeling your way through Alexandra Park at the height of the Caribbean Carnival. You just don't know what you're going to put your hands on. (laughs) I'm sorry. So getting to the Pool of Siloam is no walk in the park. He's got to fight his way through the pilgrims. All the while, he's missing out on one of the biggest begging opportunities of the year, isn't he? This man's savvy. He's got a great pitch just outside the temple. He's got a congenital birth defect, and this is the time to cash in on religious piety. The one time of the year the pilgrims are going to put their hand in their pocket. They're feeling flush, you know. Oh, let's let's hand out to him. So the timing of Jesus' demand to go and wash in the pool is, to say the very least, inconvenient. And yet, off he goes, pressing through the crowds. And, and, And what's more... As he goes, everyone can see he's got mud all over his eyes. What is... Not only is he getting in their way, but he looks like an absolute idiot. Now, what is the point of all this? If you've read John's Gospel, you know what Jesus can do. You know he can heal on the spot. You know he can heal with a word. You know that he can heal at a distance. So why on earth does he do this to this blind man? Spitting on the ground, make some mud, rub it on his eyes, go and walk half a mile. The answer must be that this is a lesson. This is a lesson. It is calculated to stir up faith in the man. 
He has to take Jesus' word and go and do it, even though it looks ridiculous. It's a challenge, isn't it? Will he take Jesus at his word and go and do it? Miss out on the financial opportunity? Swim against the tide? Look like an idiot on the naked word of Jesus? Or will he decline, wipe his eyes, stay in the comfort zone? Now, it's not that comfortable in the comfort zone, but at least it's the life he knows. You know, he has enough faith to get up and go. He goes. He obeys Jesus, even though it seems ridiculous. He finds his way to the pool. He bends down, reaches into the water, washes his eyes, and as he does it, light comes in for the first time in his life. Light floods into his whole body, and his life is changed forever. It's restored. Faith obeys Jesus even when it looks ridiculous. Now, what about you? True faith in Jesus Christ looks ridiculous in every generation. Think about your generation. I can think of three great drives in our generation. Sex, money, and power. Sex, money, and power. Just think for a moment what faith in Jesus means and how ridiculous it looks. Sex. Now, your culture, most of you, defines sexual fulfillment as the fulfillment of your personhood. The the, the only way to be fulfilled as a human being, to get a real identity, people say, to be whole is to be free to express yourself sexually whatever way suits you best and in whatever way you can obtain. Now, Jesus' way is absolutely the opposite of that. Sex is a covenant between a man and a woman which they make for life. And it's only to be expressed within those boundaries. Now, to our culture, that increasingly looks weird. Faith in Jesus, obeying Jesus, looks ridiculous. Money. Your culture defines the use of money mostly in terms that serve you. Use money to buy the good life, the life you always wanted. Whereas the Bible talks about using money to be rich in generosity, rich in giving and sharing, sacrificial, giving to the poor, giving to the work of the gospel. What percentage of most people's income is given away? According to the Bible, a baseline kind of guideline, not a law, but a guideline is 10%. 10% of take-home pay, they call it tithing. I remember having a conversation with a non believing friend about this and just mentioning in passing that we give 10% of our take-home pay to Christian work and it was as if I'd said I, I just traveled to the moon and back 10% now that means less money for holidays and gadgets and new cars and whatever it's going against the culture looks kind of ridiculous what about our use of power The culture uses power to serve and protect self and to further our own interests. The Bible reverses that dynamic. Following Jesus is basically about the way up is the way down. The Christian community is to be marked by submitting to one another. Seeking the interests of other people first. The greatest in the kingdom of Jesus is servant of all. You see how faith in Jesus swims against the tide? It looks ridiculous. How can that be the life of freedom and joy? But true faith 
has learned to obey Jesus even when it seems ridiculous. My teacher, a great theologian, Gordon Hugenberger, said, we live by faith and faith lives by exercise. We live by faith and faith lives by exercise. Christian friends here, are you exercising your faith? What about those three areas I just mentioned? Would your handling of money, sex, power, be seen as radically different from the world around or barely distinguishable? Faith in Jesus means obedience even when it looks ridiculous. Now what kind of motives, what kind of inspiration makes people live like that? The only way I think we can exercise radical, self-giving faith is if we see Jesus, if we see him. And that's how this, the third lesson, I think how the, the passage ends, is that faith sees the love and the power of Jesus Christ, his love and power. Here's how they're on display in this chapter. Love. You know, Jesus is there, he's with his disciples, he's got a lot on, he's got a pretty full schedule. Uh, he's passing by crippled people and uh, disabled people all the time. There's many, many calls on him. But he he sees this man, and there's an element of intentionality about this. He goes over to him and stops what he's doing and makes the time to engage with him, to reach out to him, to touch him, and to heal him. He cares for the man's body. He doesn't just say, uh, your sins are forgiven, as important as that is, he cares for his body. And he cares for yours. Jesus Christ loves you, body and soul. He loves all of you. The gospel hope that we have is not pie in the sky when you die by and by. The gospel hope is not a dream of freedom from the prison of the body. The gospel hope is embodied It's hope of a resurrection, hope of a a new body that's still recognizably you, a glorified body. And that's a hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus himself. Our God loves bodies. He made them in the first place, he cares for them, and he will redeem them. It was not beneath his dignity to be incarnated, Now, you know that, as the Bible says, they are lowly bodies and bodies of humiliation. And I'm sure there are 50 things about your body that you would like to change. But Jesus loves it, and he died for it. And even more for the rest of you. Your soul, your spirit, your personality, your character, all of you. Jesus Christ healed the man born blind. He gave him his eyes back. He's a saviour, full of love for you and me. But you know, just love on its own isn't enough. Because if you don't have power to change a situation, what good is love? It amounts to sympathy. Jesus Christ in this passage is shown to have extraordinary power. Power to do something that nobody else had ever heard of. What kind of power is it? I think the clue is in the mud. There's another time in the Bible where somebody takes mud and gives life through it. It's in the creation account. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God himself takes the mud of the ground, the clay of the ground, and forms a human being. 
What is going on here with Jesus forming mud out of the spit and rubbing it on the guy's eye sockets is that Jesus is doing what the creator does. He's exercising creation power. And if we've read John's gospel carefully from the beginning, this is no surprise to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were made were made through him. Nothing was made, that has been made wasn't made through him. Jesus Christ is the creator, the loving creator who has now joined himself to his creation in a human body, taken it to himself, and now takes his own hands and creates eyes and connective tissues and brain functions and in fact gives a new creation to this man born blind, a creation of sight. Now do you think, are you sometimes tempted to think that people in the ancient world were more gullible than us? You know, that they just kind of believed in stories and miracles, that we are a bit more enlightened and, you know, we, we're sort of, we, we see through this stuff. Have a look at that chapter again in your own time. See how much skepticism there is about this miracle. Nobody believes it. They go and call the neighbors in. The neighbors say, well, it really looks like him, but it can't possibly be him. And some of them say, no, I think it is him. And he says, it's me. So then they call in his parents. Hey, what do you think? Is this your son? Uh, uh, they try and distance themselves. Great parents, by the way. They just blame it all back onto the child. Uh, ask him, he's of age. So they ask him, and he said, no, it can't be right. Nobody believes him. These people aren't gullible. This is an amazing sign or miracle, even in its own time. This man, Jesus, is full of love, and he's mighty to save. And this is the Jesus who we are called to have faith in, to trust, to obey, to give our total allegiance, to acknowledge, to say, yes, Lord, I'm blind. I need you. Help me to obey even when it looks ridiculous. And he promises that he'll help us see. Now, what do you think was the most glorious sight that the man saw that day? Was it the view over the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem? Quite a good sight, as I understand it. Was it the glories of the temple architecture and the sun glinting off the gold roof? Was it the sight of all the pilgrims and all the market stalls and the colors and the people? I didn't think so. I think the most glorious sight that he saw that day was the face of Jesus. That's why he responded as he does in verses 35 to 38. Jesus comes and finds him and he looks in his face and it's a human face. And he says, do you know the son of man? He says, tell me who this is that I may believe in him. And Jesus says, it is, I'm, I'm the one standing right in front of you. It's me. And the man falls at his feet and worships him. He sees the face of Jesus Christ and he's bound to him forever. Now as we come to the Lord's table today, as we break bread and drink wine to remember his body and blood broken for us, let's ask him for a fresh sight of him today to acknowledge our need, our spiritual need, to ask him to give us a new sight of him and to give us a new perspective on our lives, on our walk that we might live by faith, not by sight. 
And perhaps there is one person here today who has realized that they are spiritually blind and they want to know Jesus. They want to cross over from darkness into light. You want to be forgiven. Will you pray that during this Lord's Supper and ask that the Lord would open your eyes today because he's willing, because he loves you, because he gave everything he had for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts now to come to the Lord's table, we think about that blind man. Think about the darkness of his world. The confusion of his life. The dreadful need that he found himself in every day. The deep yearning to be able to see, to be able to join in human community, to be delivered from his bondage. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus was loving and powerful to him. And that Jesus was so caring and wise that he gave us this lesson, that we're all born like that spiritually. We need to have our eyes opened. We need to see our deep need. We need to come to him, for only he can give us our sight and bring light to the darkness of our hearts. Thank you that for many of us, we've experienced that. Help us today to renew our vows to him and pray for those here who are looking in, aware of their need, but the light hasn't come in yet. Please, Lord, send your spirit now and make somebody here today a follower of Jesus. For we ask it in his powerful name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.